I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. After last week's episode on unions in Christian higher education, uh, we had this thought and a, a conversation that led to us considering maybe restructuring the Magnificast a little bit, and we're going to try to do that. So rather than just picking a topic week by week, which is what we've been doing for two years, I guess, <laughs> we thought it might be helpful to take our time on some of these bigger ideas at the intersections of the left and Christianity and sit with them a little bit longer. So using this episode from last week as a jumping off point, we thought that labor unions would be a really good place to start. I mean, let's let's just get back to basics and <laughs> talking about the left. Uh, in light of that, this week, we are talking with Adrian Alexander. She is a policy expert and a lobbyist with the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or AFSME, to learn a little bit more about what unions are, how they work, and what they have to do with Christianity. That's what we're going to do. But... Before we get to all that good stuff, we're going to make you sit through an ad for our show while you're listening to it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, sorry. We want to remind you all that uh, if you do like this podcast, that there are two ways that you can support us, and we really appreciate just either of them. Um, so first, you can support us with your hard-earned working dollars uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash TheMagnificast. Um, it's a cool way just to give us a few bucks and make uh, making the show a little bit easier. Uh, but if you can't do that, which is something we totally get because, like, it money don't grow on trees, um, something I've heard my dad say probably once in my <laughs> life. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Anyways, if that doesn't work out for you, that's cool. Uh, you can also just leave us, like, a nice iTunes review. Uh, we need those a lot <laughs> um, uh, for our own sort of existential uh, dread and also because it does help uh, help people find our podcast and encourage them to listen iTunes reviews also kind of help uh, game the iTunes uh, algorithm a little bit, too. So with everyone's help combined, if we can all channel our solidarity to these podcast reviews on iTunes, we can finally beat Joel Osteen on the iTunes religion charts, and we can be number one, because that's what's really important. Um, you know, just like the Bible says, rust and moth will eat your earthly treasures, but iTunes charts endure forever. So help us, help <laughs> us do, let's help us do this thing. I really like that couplet you got there. Yeah. That's a good rhyming. It's in the Bible. Uh, it'll, I didn't, it'll stay in my mind. I didn't write it. 
<laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Sorry, I, I need to go. I, I'm Catholic, so we don't read that on our own, you know. It's not not fresh in my brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, so in our last episode, if you haven't heard it, you ought to go back and listen to it. It's really good. Matt did a really good job on it. <laughs> but if you don't have time for that and you just want to get into this one, uh, I'll give you the cliff notes. So we talked about workers who want to start a union in light of their precarious job situations. The hope is that a union would give them a modicum of stability, some kind of say in in the conditions that they're working under. So while organized labor is kind of having like a moment in higher education, on the whole, unions in the U.S. have been in a long downward slide. So, for example, according to the Pew Research Center, a real-life actual research place, 20% of workers in the U.S. were unionized in the early 1980s, whereas in the latter half of the 2010s, it's down to only 10% of workers, and both of those are not high percents. <laughs> it's a wild statistic to think about, and uh, makes me just wish I was in a union even a little bit more. Um, <laughs> we could probably attribute this whole uh, downward trend to a lot of different factors. Um, I mean, cause and effect in the social sciences are hard things. <laughs> to understand, at least for me. I do communication studies. What do I know? Um, <laughs> but what's interesting is that Pew also notes that in a different survey, 51% of people said that dwindling union membership was something that they considered bad, which is like pretty interesting, right? So the friction is that like um, many people seem to think that unions are good in the abstract, but only a few people actually belong to them. So in light of all of this, uh, we thought maybe some political education might help. You know, if people seem to like unions, maybe we should talk about them and convince people to start them or join them. <laughs> uh, I should add, too, on the Canadian side, the unionization rate is higher here, uh, but the government is tends to be more legislative against uh, labor rights, which is pretty wild. Something you might not expect. Uh, what a surprise. So before we get to Dree, though, it might be helpful to explore a little bit about what organizing workers are up against, especially from Christian constituencies. So for workers, a union means a way to leverage their own labor as a power against their employees, right? There's power in the union because there's more workers than there are bosses. Uh, a union is a way for workers to sort of like pump the brakes of an institution and make employers give some of their power or at least a little more benefits to the people who work for them. Uh, bosses, though, uh, for them, unions are more a sign of tumultuous or dangerous times to come. They are supposed to force employers to provide adequate staffing and pay workers more and supply benefit, better benefits, just to name like a few things. So there's a real antagonism there, uh, a real problem, and it's good news for the workers, bad news for the bosses. Uh, but the trouble is that sometimes the workers think that it's bad news for them, too. And uh, Christianity has not too small of a role to play in making that uh, a thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Christians have a very long and very complicated history with labor unions in the United States. They've been on the side of the bosses, but sometimes also on the side of the workers. It's not all bad news. It's no secret that on this podcast, though, we like the Christians who hang out with the workers. <laughs> we have uh, that bias. We're telling you up front. Look how honest we are. This is good journalism. Um, <laughs> but if you're anything like us, you might not have even heard much about unions growing up in the church. I know I sure didn't. That's probably because uh, some powerful forms of Christianity, um, like evangelicalism, that's my background at least, operate out of a pretty weird conservative political philosophy that like whether or not they'd admit it, usually opts for the maintenance of the status quo over the poor and the oppressed, right? Um, and in that conservative Christianity, you don't get the option for the poor, you get an option for the bosses. 
But for Christians who are interested in social justice, unions are an important vehicle for getting rid of or at least messing up that status quo in the interest of the have-nots. You know, it's the kind of thing that Jesus is always talking about in the Gospels. So to figure out a little bit more about what's going on with unions and even um, some more stuff about Christianity and unions, here's our conversation with Dree Alexander. This week on The Magnificast, we're talking with Adrian Alexander, Director of Intergovernmental Affairs with the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Dree. Could you tell us a little bit about your work? Um, what do you do? And uh, how does the, uh, the AFSCME, <laughs> how does that operate um, where it, it, in Chicago in, uh, in labor relations? Yep, so I work for the Illinois Council where... So all the AFSCME locals in Illinois fall under our council, and we have about 100,000 active members and retirees. Um, We're the largest state employee union, so that means everyone from uh, correctional officers and educators that work in the state prisons, folks that do food stamp program and work in the county hospitals, Um, Municipal employees um, in Chicago, the closure of the mental health clinics got a lot of press. Those are our folks. Um, We represent folks in the library that animal control. And then also we represent some private sector folks that receive a lot of government funding, like folks that work in um, facilities that um, deal with folks with developmental disabilities and child welfare agencies. So, um, a lot of what I do on the political side, on the policy side, means that I am uh, looking at policies that impact those members in those sectors, uh, talking to politicians about why certain pieces of legislation are good or bad, and then also on the electoral side, supporting folks that support our members or getting folks out that don't. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just like, uh, I mean, okay, so doing policy for a union uh, to me is still a little bit abstract, but like, what does that look like? So you go and talk to politicians and you try just to convince them that unions are good or, or how does that uh, shake out? It's generally more specific. So for example, um, when uh, the mental health clinic closures were proposed, um, we were lobbying on the budget saying, here's why this isn't a good idea in terms of both money and providing access to our members and saying, like, here's the stories they can tell. We also partnered with community groups that dealt with um, the closures and had some of the consumers that engaged in those issues. Um, So sometimes it's coalition work around uh, raising revenue for public services. Um, It could be fighting specific legislation around privatization or lowering thresholds um, for accountability, that type of thing. Um, but I, I, I personally uh, do a lot at City of Chicago and Cook County. And then I'm one of five people on a team, our legislative team that works on state issues. So, um, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of bills that are passing every year. And given how many people we represent in a number of different Um, work environments, there's so much that impacts our members. We're reviewing every piece of legislation, seeing if it would have an impact on our members, and then educating the lawmakers on what that impact is, uh, getting people to them in their district, contacting them. 
and letting them know uh, what that what that can mean for our members. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, it's cool just to hear about how all that works. Um, a lot of behind the scenes things that I'm sure a lot of people don't know about. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, something I don't know about for sure. Well, uh, this is kind of like a big picture question about the labor movement, and uh, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, I suppose. Uh, so it seems like the labor movement may have kind of dwindled a bit in previous years, and uh, that is my unexpert opinion <laughs> or just observation. Um, but it seems like they're, uh, it's starting to pick up steam again, or at least it seems like um, at least online there's a lot more exposure to uh, struggles for unionization. Mm -hmm. So um, if, if I'm right in thinking that it dwindled in or declined in the last few years, uh, why do you think people are starting to be interested? in organized labor again? Well, I think that there's a couple things that we could talk about. For one, actual unionization rates have been decreasing steadily. So I think that's one part of, you know, when I think about my grandfather who um, worked in a car factory in Flint and uh, how much of the town was unionized and how many people understood the benefits of labor versus today when there's a much smaller portion of um, the population, it, it's just harder for when less people have a union to be able to see the concrete gains. My grandfather could still tell you today um, about all the raises he received, uh, all the benefits that he got because of the union. Um, but, you know, there's so many people that they're not every couple of years bargaining a new contract to where it's very clear, here's what I got and here's um, the folks that were able to help deliver this for me. Um, but also I think it's, um, you know, people think about the concrete things like wages being a, a, talked about a lot, but there's so much more that goes into bargaining in a contract, like making sure your healthcare costs are reasonable or making sure there's appropriate staffing in your workplace or safety measures. Um, creating a process where there's recourse if you're wronged by management, or even something more broad like uh, reducing gender and racial inequalities to where you don't have a situation where all the women are paid significantly less or where black folks are marginalized and don't have opportunities for promotion. Um, and I think just given what's going on in our country where after a recession, um, that impacted so many people and I think really a generation where we may not be better off than our parents, um, like people expect generations to be, that in just a growing inequality that it's like, oh, remember that thing that our grandparents used to have that was probably good. <laughs> um, so I think that there is just this awakening and, and it is documented by data that more and more younger people are um, very clear on the benefits of the union, and most people would want to join a union if they had the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, that's a really good way to maybe get us into talking a little bit more about the the benefits of unions and unionization. I mean, you mentioned a lot of them just kind of really briefly there. Uh, maybe we could just talk a little more directly about some of them. So, for example, even your job is my guess is a lot of people wouldn't think that that's the kind of thing that you get by buying into a, a union, you know, by by forming a union that you have access to people who are looking out for you in terms of the legislative policies that are going around and that sort of thing. 
So, you know, I think at least a lot of people that I know when they think about unionization, they think, um, you know, the, the direct benefit is, of course, trying to get uh, equal pay and, and um, you know, safety on the job and that sort of thing. But obviously, there's a lot more to it. So could you walk us through, you know, if, if, if a, a workplace unionizes, what are the kinds of things that people suddenly have access to that they wouldn't have maybe uh, beforehand? Yeah, um, I think. I think someone advocating for adequate staffing is a, a big thing that we hear in not just our public sector, but our private sector locals as well. Um, because when you're working for an agency, say, and um, you consistently have three people doing one person's job, uh, that, makes, that makes your life at work incredibly hard. Um, and I think it, it's been kind of more publicized with the teacher strikes across the country and fighting for adequate staffing has kind of come more to the forefront. Um, But I think uh, you said safety measures is one of the things that people think about, but um, I'm not, I'm not sure that um, people outside of jobs um, that like corrections where it may be something that's obviously an issue, but um, UFCW here works with environmental um, activists to pass a, a um, legislation around changing the BPA and receipts because their workers are constantly handling stuff that um, isn't good for their health. And particularly if women are pregnant, it's really harmful. Um, so they just pass that, which is not a workplace safety issue that would have been obvious to me um, or probably a, a number of people that go work at a grocery store or any retail um, uh, place. So I think that there's there's sometimes stuff that you don't even think of, but also having a lobbyist and, and a group in the state legislature where so many laws impact you. And I think state legislatures are often not um, paid attention to in Chicago, at least. I think most people can name their alderman, their city council person, but most people don't know who their state legislator is. And um, there's just so much in your life that is impacted. And it's kind of the um, bench for congressional and other higher offices. So uh, I think it's a really important place to pay attention to. I met a guy once who asked what I did. I said I was a lobbyist, and he said, oh, I don't believe in your profession. And I was like, well, what do you do? And um, he was a teacher, and I was like, your whole life at work is set by the state legislator, basically, and you're lucky that you have a lobbyist who's arguing about, you know, what class size should be, that there should be more funding for your districts, because all of this is set in politics, so it's really important that workers have a voice in that process, because um, you can bet that corporations all have their lobbyists. I think it's important for unions to uh, have a And I think it's important that unions are there because not only are they advocating for their members, but they're advocating for broader forms of justice and pushing things that affect all workers, like Fight for 15, um, minimum wage increases, fair scheduling um, just passed in the city of Chicago, uh, paid leave has passed before that. So those are important things that materially impact workers, whether they're in a union or not. 
Yeah, that's such an interesting story. And uh, it's, you know, funny in a very sad way. But, you know, I mean, like the the word um, you're you're ta- you know, you're on the side of, of workers rather on the side yeah. of corporations and lobbying, you know, gets construed as being, you know, for corporate interests. So um, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a it's a it's an interesting way that um, that rhetoric works where we don't think about um, that you, somebody could lobby for your own good. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't even know it. No, and I, I actually use that term uh, a decent amount because I think it is important <laughs> for people to know there, there are lobbyists for unions, for um, Sierra Club or environmental groups, uh, for consumers through uh, progressive um, groups that have C4s. Like this is, it, I'm not the only good lobbyist out there, um, <laughs> but I, I think it's important for people to know and to know that there are, I mean, unions have dues, but there are other organizations you can support if you support a cause and that there are groups that are lobbying. It's important to know, like, there are ways that you can get engaged in the political process or have people engaged on your behalf in the political process in that way um, and support organizations that do that. Yeah, well, maybe in uh, in hopes of kind of demystifying um, lobbying a little bit more, uh, is there like a campaign that you could tell us about that um, you know sticks out to you from your experience? I I, I kind of hate it when people ask me about successes because like my whole life is playing oh. defense. <laughs> um, but I can tell you about a couple of things. Um, I, some of them are are, are mixed bags. I'll say that. Um, under Rahm Emanuel, um, he tried to privatize 311 system. Um, and, um, you know, I, I was able to work with Alderman and get a letter signed um, by the majority of council saying they wouldn't support such a privatization. We involved our members that work in 311 system and, and, you know, acknowledged that there were things that could be done better, but that privatization wasn't the way we were able to beat that back. That's a clear, a clear win. Um, and I'm, I feel like I might be picking a little bit on Ron, but there's so many examples I can think of. Um, <laughs> in uh, his first budget, there were cuts to library hours, um, the closure of the public health clinics, and uh, the closure of half of the mental health clinics. And I think it's one of the things in this city that have, has gotten attention along with the teacher strike and uh, the murder of Laquan McDonald. But we were able to um, get our members in the library system really engaged. We had the best action I've ever been a part of, which was a read-in on the fifth floor where the mayor's office is um, on Halloween. And there were lots of kids, amazing costumes, great staff from the libraries that kept that going. And it was pretty wonderful. We were able to work with the Progressive Caucus and the City Council and others that signed on to a letter saying that they couldn't support such um, drastic cuts. And we were able to get back the library hours and those staff um, that were set for layoff. So those are, you know, two things that were really took a lot <laughs> to fight and um, were big. We were able to pass a privatization ordinance in the city council um, that set up a process for review because it used to be that it was basically like rubber stamped and um, 
to set up a process to say, like, if you're going to privatize something, you have to make the case about it's not just off of um, gutting wages, basically, because uh, the non-city workforce would be non-union. Um, and you have to review if city council ultimately votes to privatize. There's a review process in place that says they're keeping up to uh, what they said they were going to do and not just raising the cost year after year, which is what generally happens. So that was a process thing. It took us three years to pass, um, but it was a process thing that was really important to get in place um, in a city where we're continually dealing with uh, deficits um, because in part they skipped pension payments for many, many years. Um, and now that debt has come due and um, and privatization for a while seemed like it was the go-to answer for dealing with that. Uh, thanks so much for sharing all that. Um, something that you said in the beginning where you're saying uh, you don't like when people ask about successes because so much of your job is, is playing defense was really interesting to me. Uh, and I wonder if we could talk a little bit too about how, so we've been going through how unions kind of help uh, workers in in ways that you might not even suspect or, or know about. Um, but how are unions also tied into broader struggles for justice in society? You know, one thing you mentioned, for example, earlier was addressing inequalities of gender or race within uh, workplaces. Um, how do union efforts sort of tie into something that's not necessarily always uh, just trying to hold on to what you've got, but also, you know, really trying to encourage society to be more just and to address inequalities, whether they be class or gender or race or, or whatever? Yeah, and I should say, um, going back to that first budget fight with the mental health clinic closures and the libraries, um, I think it's important to recognize we're fighting for our members. We're also fighting for the services that they provide. Um, and so closing mental health clinics in our city where access to mental health is a need that it seems like everyone recognizes is a, a real loss to the community, to the city. And, um, and it meant that in places where people can't afford um, or don't have private insurance that uh, allows them access to that, that the public safety net is incredibly important. So it's not just my members and their jobs, but the services that they were providing to the community. Same for the library, which is an amazing resource. Um, as a mom whose kid goes to story time every week, um, it, it's just amazing all that the library offers for free. And, um, and I think it's a safe place for kids to go after school. So cutting those hours and having less staff to make the library run well hurts the community. So I, I, I want to say that in terms of services. I'd also say that in the public sector in particular, black women are disproportionately represented. And um, so I, I saw that, which I can't recall off the top of my head, but something like 40% of black women that work, work in the public sector. Um, so it was desegregated first and was a place where people could go. I mean, in my, my other grandfather worked in the postal service. Uh, it's a place that employed lots and lots of black people for a long time. So when you're talking about cuts to the public sector, you're talking about disproportionately cutting black women. Uh, that was the case in that first budget with Rom, where like 
75% of the people that were set for layoff were women or people of color. So uh, that's not, of course, true of the entire city, right? But it's so much so in the public sector. So those are the folks that are holding down um, black and brown communities on the south and west sides of Chicago where there needs to be investment. So if you're cutting uh, those jobs, you're really undercutting the um, those communities in a huge way. So I want to say that before I get to specifics around race and gender. Um, I think I, I mentioned earlier minimum wage, fair scheduling, and paid leave. Um, I think that those are incredible fights of our time. I, when I tell, tell people like what I do, basically it's like arguing for services, public services and a safety net, arguing for the money to fund that and just figuring out what it is government should do and should be to people. I, that's in the biggest sense what I work on. And um, I'm a person that believes that government has the ability to be a robust safety net and should be for people and that it should be um, taking care of the most vulnerable. Uh, so I think how we do that, how we make sure government is there to regulate bad businesses and keep bad practices, can protect consumers and keep our environment safe. It's also about like making sure that there's a floor for how workers should be treated. Government has a role in that. So um, it's not just, it's not just a, a issue of race and gender, but I think that uh, in that big picture sense, government is there to make sure the most vulnerable are taken care of, and that absolutely has to do everything with race and gender. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame that whole conversation. Um, well, this is kind of a pivot in a little bit of a different direction, but not that different. Uh, last week in uh, in last week's episode, you know we. Um, we talked about uh, unions in higher ed, and uh, there's part where Dean uh, read this bit from Pope Francis in an address that he gave to trade unions in Italy, which is kind of uh, a, a little bit inside baseball for, for Pope Francis, but still, it was good. Um, so one of the things that uh, Francis said was that there's no good society without a good union, and there's no good union that is not reborn every day in the peripheries, that does not transform the discarded stones of the economy into its cornerstones. And uh, I mean... Uh, as I'm reflecting back on that thing from Pope Francis and I'm hearing you talk, I mean, it's, um, it seems like this, you know, it seems like Pope Francis is right. I mean, at least what he is saying unions do are also what you're saying unions do. Um, so in light of all of this though, I mean, you kind of have a, you have a Catholic background as well. Um, so, um, maybe, I don't know, do you want to talk about, um, your involvement with Catholicism and Catholic social teaching and how that relates to you being an organizer? Um, would that be cool? Yeah. Um, so I'm a cradle Catholic, and um, my mom converted um, and a after after her and my dad got married. Um, but it's kind of interesting how our family became Catholic because my dad's dad um, fought in uh, World War One and uh, came back and was really disgruntled. Um, he did hardwood floors and couldn't get any work there in Louisville. And um, 
he converted the family because nuns um, getting pews redone were the only folks that would give him work after he served his country. So, um, so that's how our family became Catholic. <laughs> and um, my dad works for the church. He's a photographer for the Catholic newspaper in Georgia. And even though we lived elsewhere for a few years um, growing up, he, he worked for a different archdiocese as a photographer. Uh, I bring that up because I think his work and me having to play photographer's assistant on the weekends when he would have to work meant that I was exposed to Catholicism and like a, the broadest sense of the word. Um, when we lived in the DC Archdiocese, he worked for the Spanish language paper there. So um, I would go to different events with um, those communities. Um, I knew priests, uh, like priests would sometimes come over for dinner. We, we went to visit the Port Clares in the DC area, um, like before school sometimes. Uh, and hung out with them and their dogs. Um, so it gave me a large exposure that I don't think most people grow up with. So I'm fortunate for that. Um, we always went to black Catholic churches. So um, I say that because I think it's important to kind of put it in that context of like, you know, the Exodus story and, and just, and, and Jesus being on the side of the vulnerable was always at the forefront. Um, and it wasn't something that I realized that other folks really didn't grow up with having only gone to black Catholic churches. Um, and then, uh, you know, I got married in the church. My husband is also Catholic. Um, and we go to a parish in Inglewood on the south side of Chicago and we don't live on the south side we commute about 30 minutes on a wide open road on a Sunday morning early uh, to go to church every week and we're pretty involved um, I mean I'd say we're active parishioners we go to Bible study when we can um, and you know, we do holy days of obligation usually at bilingual or Spanish service uh, in our neighborhood. So um, we're pretty Catholic, I think, compared to the average. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about all of that, um, how these things go together for you, uh, especially because I'm a Catholic interested in labor struggles too, but in a very different uh, capacity, I guess. Um yeah, I I think I read that you either are or, or one time part of the Catholic Labor Network. Um, and yeah, like, could you talk a little bit about how um, how these two uh, parts of your your day to day life, I guess, go together? You know, being a, a person who works for the cause of labor, how does that kind of relate to your participation in the, the large, weird world of Catholicism? And then maybe vice versa, you know, how does uh, being a Catholic sort of inform your practices uh, working in a union capacity? Yeah, in, in my mind, um, so I was just say I'm a board member of the Catholic Neighbor, Labor Network, and um, I am a former board member of Pax Christi USA. Um, and um, I think that in my mind, it's never been like that separate, those worlds. Um, 
And I didn't really know about Catholic social teaching by name until probably college or something. Um, I mean, it, but it was like, oh, obviously, obviously we would think this, obviously these things go together. Um, because to me, the thing that makes both Catholicism and labor radical is the way that you're oriented into not thinking about yourself as an individual, but the collective and bringing everyone up. Um, so uh, I think in that way, my Catholicism and my work in labor are completely synced. Um, and I think the other thing is they're both dependent on action. Um, you know, a, you can't just have words you must do and you're called to do and be amongst the marginalized and in labor. We're called to do collective action and work uh, for those that um, need it. So, and, and, and everyone, as I talked about before, not just our members, but the working class. Uh, so for me, they've always been together and it's hard for me to say, well, this part of me is the Catholic part of me that feels this way. And this part of me is the labor part of me that feels that way. Cause really um, there's not, it doesn't seem like they're in conflict for me and at least they haven't been. Um, and, and I think it's just about living these values that often go hand in hand. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, just those two things, they, they go together. It's hard to even think of them apart, but some Christians do think of them apart right. <laughs> really problematically. Yeah. I don't know. So I'm not Catholic. Uh, I'm a Protestant Christian. Um, and there's a lot of conservatism within Protestant Christianity, mm -hmm. um, as everyone knows at this point. Um, and that conservatism has given them some allergies to the ideas about unionization or even just working class politics in general, um, you know, for some ideological reasons and some theological reasons for sure. So I guess in light of that, though, how might you explain to uh, another Christian person who doesn't share, you know, this, your same understanding of uh of unions, like why they should be a part of something like that or why they should support unionization. Yeah. Uh, I guess how would you, yeah, just how would you parse that out to somebody who is a bit more conservative? Well, first, I don't want you to have to own that as a Protestant. Like Catholics also have that <laughs> well, conservatism. And sure, those, sure. Um, you know, uh, it's messed up how um, Catholic organizations often often use this like idea of religious teacher as a way to avoid unionization. It's disgusting. Uh, so it's not all on Protestants. We have our dirt too. Um, Thank you for but, taking that burden from me. I appreciate it. But I, I guess I would say like in the same way, like it's hard for me to say like, I'm a black woman and I can't, it's hard for me to separate only as a black person, only as a woman, uh, do I feel these things? And I don't feel a responsibility to explain how every black person feels about it. I kind of take that same approach to um, Catholics who come about it in a different way in terms of like, I am happy to, to say like, here's what I took from Jesus. <laughs> and here's what I take from the Bible. And this really drives what I think um, and I, it's hard for me to see how there's, there's harm from workers collectively organizing in a religious institution for these reasons. 
but I, I don't know if it's just personality or what, but it's not um, on religion. Maybe it's just because I fight in my work life that I, that I try not to beat people up about religion. But in religion, it's, it's like, okay, you know, I definitely didn't come to this conclusion. Um, and here's why I think what I do. But, and I know that there's plenty of Catholic conservatives, Christian conservatives broadly out there that are anti-union. But honestly, a lot of times in my experience, um, and I think that there's some uh, studies to back this up. I seem to remember reading a New York Times article about it, which I'll share with y'all after the call, um, that oftentimes our politics uh, kind of inform our religion. And um, it's really interesting that, like, if you hold a political belief, you can say, like, oh, and here's how my religious beliefs also inform this. Well, I can do the same. <laughs> so that's how you come up with people that read the same Jesus and the same words and, you know, rationalize it either way. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's definitely something that we <laughs> come up against to get a lot in on this podcast. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> um, well, maybe you could talk to you a little bit more about seeing Christians and Catholics who do uh, support unionization and, and are involved. And, you know, uh, I'm so encouraged by you talking about your involvement, for example, in Pax Christi and the Catholic Labor Network and, and seeing these things as like totally natural. Um, you know, how do you think that Christians can, I guess, broach this conversation uh, with other Christians? You know, what, what kind of uh, what kind of good like rhetorical moves might there be to get somebody on board with thinking about the the ideas that you're talking about here of you know uh, government not necessarily being a force for evil or or unions potentially even being a good thing you know <laughs> like uh, how how might Christians be able to work together to to sort of um, talk with people in our own communities about that? I should also say that um, I'm a board member of Arise Chicago, which is like an interface um, organization uh, that does work with workers and has a worker center. And I think that because they have folks that are involved from all kinds of traditions, um, I think that one of the things they they help with the Chicago Federation of Labor, labor in the pulpit on Labor Day. Um, And I think just getting it out in people's minds that these things can uh, coexist is a a big deal. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so, I think that my I keep my religion in the forefront. It's kind of funny because growing up in Georgia, um, one, there's not as many Catholics as there are in Chicago. Uh, so I never really thought of myself as that religious in comparison to other folks. <laughs> Excuse me. But um, as I've gotten older, and I think I'm in circles where there's less religious people, I've still spoken about my faith, because I think it is important that they're not be seen that there's a monopoly on religion by folks that are only conservative or only think a certain way. Um, but I think it's something we deal with in the labor world as well. Folks often operate in silos. I'm at work, so I can talk about the union here. I'm at church, and I don't talk about the union here. Um, I remember at a conference we had of our Illinois uh, folks that 
I was eating breakfast, and these women came by and were like, girl, I didn't know you were an athlete. They go to church together. They see each other every week, but they didn't know that they were both active members in their union because it's just something that you don't talk about. And so I think it's important um, not to have those silos and to really be your whole self in all these spaces because I think it's important for the folks at church to know this is what I do for a living and like part of the collective action that we can take is like how can I use my skills to help you um how can you know you tell me like what's going on with you and I can let you know oh you know I didn't work on this bill but I know that there's someone working on this thing in Springfield um but also at work saying you know I think one thing that's a blind spot that we might be missing is how are we going to do outreach to the religious community or is there a role that we can have religion play um, that maybe folks aren't thinking about as much because there aren't church going folks in the room. So um, I think that, that may be easier said than done, right? Like depending on if you're the only religious person in the room or or, you know, you're the only person that works in politics and people have a negative feeling about politics, or if you're the only black woman in the room, then you might not want to speak up every time about things that may be seen as black people issues. Uh, There's all these kind of things that make it hard, but I think that it's important uh, for everyone to bring all those skills to whatever conversation. Um, And it's, it's helpful, I think. I mean, when when I was uh, when I was organizing um, in the fall around uh, after the Pennsylvania stuff came out, uh, it was really interesting to talk to the labor people about what I was doing in terms of organizing around religion because they're like, oh, that's that's cool. I never thought of organizing in a Catholic context, and the Catholic folks being like, huh, I never thought about organizing around this because. I don't do anything having to do with organizing in my, in my regular life. So I didn't even know where to start. Um, but I was able to make something happen because, because of both parts of myself. Yeah, that's cool. Um, very, <laughs> makes me very excited. Like, like that's something that I'd be very excited to be a part of um, as well. I mean, that, that question, like where people think, you know, I don't even know where to start or, you know, they, it, it did never occur to them that like um, they occupy this kind of interesting space where maybe they could be a part of that too. Like, what would you say to them? How, how would they start or where would people, um, where would people look if they wanted to be involved in these types of struggles, either with, you know, a, a specific organization you mentioned, like Arise Chicago or something, or just with unionization in general? Yeah, I I mean, I think that there are, at least in Chicago, and obviously that's a, in Illinois, that's the most familiar context for me, there are a number of um, interfaith progressive organizations. Um, in downstate Illinois, there's the Faith Coalition um, that does some work on these issues. But also, I would say, like, I just feel like we so very rarely have these conversations with each other anymore. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people that I go to church with every Sunday that I speak to that know my daughter, that I have no idea what they do the other (laughs) days of the week. Um, And having that kind of intentionality, then when you want to go do something, I think makes it a little easier because there's relationship there 
and it's something I, I am by no means an expert on, but I really do try um, to do a better job of like, I mean, I'm obviously very active on Twitter. I'm constantly like trying to be like, okay, put your phone down, be very present. But, um, but having conversation and relationship with people in spaces that is different. I mean, it's also something that I, I do. It's something that I know how to do strategically for work as a lobbyist. Um, but it's also something like in labor spaces that I try and be in relationship with people outside of the public sector unions who naturally work together, but also talking to some of the folks I know in the trades where our work doesn't overlap so much, but it makes sense for us to be in relationship because, you know, there's constantly conversation about, well, what are they doing on this issue or why are they taking this position and just understanding and have being able to have like hard conversations down the line of, well, here's what the concern is from these folks, or I really want to understand why y'all took this position because this is how it hurts my community. Um, so if you're in relationship with people, you can then have that collective action. It's, it's a lot um, easier to jump in when you're sure that everyone's going to be behind you or holding hands. Um, so I think that's like step number one, build relationships with people. <laughs> um, there are organizations and I, I, like a lot of, um, a lot of the kind of progressive faith based organizations are from the Gamaliel network. I know, um, but that's just like one that comes to, to mind. Um, but, figuring out what those spaces are. And sometimes they're not religious organizations, but they align with you and are respectful of your religion. And maybe you can bring that side um, kind of to the fore. Uh, so I don't think it has to be simply um, religious organizations or faith-based organizations that are doing good work, but also um, good organizations that respect um, your faith when you bring that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, as we kind of are like coming up to the the last you know ten or fifteen minutes here, um, one thing that you were just talking about, I think, is really interesting, and I'd like to hear more about. You were saying uh, the the importance of building these relationships, um, you know, not only with your immediate neighbors, but uh, people in in other working capacities or other other parts of life too, uh, because it's easier to take these risks when you feel like you have a bunch of people behind you. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about how like. Uh, in the last several years, like there's a, a rise of a lot of reactionary forces, but there's also a rise in in solidarity. It seems to me, and people thinking about, you know, well, what would it mean to have a society for the many, or or a society where where we're all, you know, doing that. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about uh, the labor movement just in general? Um, I mean, do you have thoughts kind of on how how the labor movement is is working to to build those ties some more? You know, in, in throughout history, the labor movement sometimes has been such a an incredible, like even international kind of solidarity force. Um, and uh, yeah, do you have thoughts on maybe how working class people are or or could be contributing to that moment and that energy of of building a, a collective power that goes even beyond you know just your own your own workplace or or just the public or private sector or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I think the relationship piece is built into that too, right? Like our union connects folks um, who wouldn't otherwise be connected. And I think 
two things come to mind immediately. Um, one is a strike we had. I remember it was Thanksgiving Day. Uh, an employer kept us out um, on Thanksgiving to prove a point. <laughs> um, and it was Thanksgiving Day. I was at a county jail on a, they had a 24 hour strike line there. And I remember standing next to a guy that was like in full on hunting gear, like camouflage orange hat and an older black woman. And um, like, I was just looking at them and as they were talking about their experiences and what they would usually do on Thanksgiving, it was like, where but the union? would y'all be together on Thanksgiving Day. Um, and uh, another a convention where I had a tough conversation with a guy from a prison who worked at a prison, um, and he was talking about, you know, people on welfare for generations, and we had a, a long conversation to where he came to see the light. <laughs> um, but I really don't think that I could have had that conversation with him but for being connected by the union. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done in our own ranks. And, and I think having a union, just it's proven to kind of change people's politics in that way. Um, so that's one thing just like looking in. In terms of going out in a broader sense, I'm encouraged by some of the leaders um, that are coming up through the ranks and that do a really, really good job of uh, thinking intersectionally and not shying away from talk about race in particular um, or immigration. And when you think about the way that the labor movement has come along in the past, I don't know, 10 years on this conversation, um, I, I'm encouraged to, to see more people like taking it on um, and, and saying we wouldn't tolerate this in a workplace and we're not going to tolerate this in our country. Um, and I think that that's positive. Um, I, I always think that there's things we could do better um, and that we have to continue to push um, forward. Uh, but I do think I, I am encouraged, and um, when I think about even where I started nine years ago um, and just how many more women and people of color at our, are at some of the tables, I just think it's going to continue to get better and better, especially if we continue to do the organizing in hard-to-organize workplaces and um, continue to get more and more folks in the union movement. Because, as you said, the union movement has been a force for good for a long time, um, and surely there are things you can point to um, on the not-so-great side, and you mentioned internationally being involved, um, but I, I think that there, the union movement is kind of one of the last huge forces for good that has money to participate in politics, um, and is an important kind of bulwark to some of the bad, really conservative aspects um, that are leading to the inequality that's going on in society, which is uh, really a poison. Yeah. Well, we have a few a few minutes left, and I guess I want to bring up one more thing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
okay, I, I don't want to be combative or or mean about this, and I don't think I will be. Uh, just <laughs> just want to preference this all with my my Midwest niceness yep. and um in a, and my inability to deal with real conflict. Um, <laughs> something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is um, incarceration yep. and prison abolition, and something that you're talking about here too is about um, representing uh, folks who work in corrections, you know, in, in a union. Yep. And I don't know, like um, on the one hand. <laughs> that makes me feel kind of gross and weird. <laughs> On the other hand, I like I also get it because um, you know those places are um, bad and hard places to work right. um, and dangerous for all, for everyone involved, not just corrections workers, but also for inmates. I don't know how how would you balance out um, how would you balance out those types of tensions? I guess um, you know, like on the one hand, we we know that uh, mass incarceration is a is a problem. Um, and, um, you know, one, one thing that we talked about in this podcast is abolition, but, um, what, what do you think? I don't know. How do you parse that out? You had one of our members on who is a, oh, really? who is a chaplain. Oh, Erica. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll say a number of things. Um, I do think mass incarceration is a problem and we represent folks kind of all throughout the system. We represent, um, folks that work in state prisons, um, so chaplains, people that are educators and counselors, also correctional officers. Uh, we represent public defenders who are often defending folks um, that are in the system. Uh, we represent probation and parole. So literally in every part of the system. Um, we had an issue um, a few years ago under Governor Quinn where he closed um, a women's prison that was closer to Cook County where most of the folks that are in DOC um, are from. And now those women are further away from their families and that makes it harder to maintain those ties. That's not good for reducing recidivism. And no one got out of prison as a result of that closure. They just moved. So um, it is maybe a more nuanced take, uh, but I but I don't think that that was helpful, even though we closed a prison. Uh, at that same time, they closed adult transition centers, which folks generally had a uh, lower chance of ending back up in the system. Um, it was another part of, you know, closing facilities that I don't think benefited folks that were in the system at all. My focus as a lobbyist for AFSCME has been on uh, what can we do to, yes, keep our workers safe, also reduce recidivism because we have an overcrowded system in Illinois, um, and the things that we know work from data um, are making sure that people have education and it's hard to keep educators in the system um, because it's a dangerous job. Um, it's hard for folks and, I'm, and this has been particularly an issue in the Department of Juvenile Justice um, where it's hard to keep folks as educators who need more when there's not enough educators, there's long class, long wait times for getting in classes there's long wait times, it means that people aren't going to uh, receive adult basic education before they even get let out. And if you don't have adult basic education, your chances of getting a job that is going to provide for your family 
are very, very low. And then therefore you'll probably end up back in the system. So that's not helpful for anyone. I think the things that we've tried to advocate for, we don't generally take positions on sentencing stuff. It's just been about like making a safe workplace and reducing recidivism. So advocating for programming and education have been a big part of what I do. Um, now for, for people that are arguing for abolition, I've gotten into arguments with folks that say, well, like not one more dime to the system that is completely broken. Um, the politicians aren't there. Uh, they're not ready to shut down every Illinois prison. And so I feel strongly that folks that are in prison right now should have access to those things. Yeah, it's more money towards programming and education. Um, but I think that that's, I think that that's important if we want those folks who are going back to their communities to have a productive life. And part of the reason, like I struggled when I um, was figuring out what I wanted to do actually, um, a long time ago I thought I wanted to do education and I was like, oh, everybody's, everybody's interested in education policy. There's plenty of people to do that. And I was debating like, do I wanna go into the labor side or do I wanna work on criminal justice stuff? And I ultimately decided labor because I figured maybe that was front end solves the problem, more people in union jobs would mean less people um, in the criminal justice system. Uh, so I, I definitely um, am sympathetic to a number of the arguments that people would make. And um, I think I've learned a lot. I've, I'm, I work on correction stuff for us in the state. Uh, like I, I'm the point person on the legislative team for that. So, and I took that on because I do feel strongly about fairness and justice. Um, but I also think that it's important for folks that are there and have a sentence that they're going to serve out that we make the most of their time. Now, there's also the question of like, what about your members that do X, Y, Z? And luckily, I don't have that job um, representing folks, but I will say that I think everyone deserves fairness. And just like the public defender who may defend people that are guilty, um, that it's our job to make sure that there's fairness for our members, even if they do something wrong. Um, so that's, I think that may cover most of what yeah. you're going to ask. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's something I really respect. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, well, uh, I really appreciate you giving that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, just hearing how that works out from your perspective, I think, is uh, an important perspective. I think it's good. I look forward to an engaging conversation on Twitter afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really appreciate you coming on to talk with us. Um, it was really good hearing from you and kind of hearing about your work. It's such a cool thing. Um, I hope that people, um, you know, learn something new about the labor movement and try to uh, figure out how they fit into it and how they can get involved. It's been really cool. Very good. It's good to talk to y'all too. And I really enjoy the podcast. So thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also leave us an iTunes review, which will help us, um, you know, spread the good word about unions. <laughs> <laughs> cool uh, our intro music is from Amaria Armstrong and our outro music is by the Logical Spoon we'll see you next week with more interesting stuff about labor I don't want to
gonna get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still...